Hello, and welcome to Class 19, the second class on The Hobbit. Today we'll spend most of our time with Bilbo and Gollum at the roots of the mountains, but we'll start with a look at the elves of Rivendell. Okay. I want to spend most of our time today talking about um, the Riddles in the Dark chapter, the turning point in Bilbo's career, but I don't want to completely skip over uh, Rivendell and the elves because... It's, it's quite something, uh, especially one of the most remarkable sort of consequences of reading the Silmarillion first and then coming to The Hobbit right away is getting to Rivendell and being, you know, this is not how I remember the elves, especially since, I mean, when we come into the Valley of Rivendell and we hear the elves singing tra la la lolly and, and carrying on uh, with a song which Tolkien himself describes as ridiculous, um, these are probably, probably Noldor singing. I mean, Rivendell is one of the places left in Middle-earth where uh, we're told this on a couple of occasions where many of the Noldor who remain are still there. Um, so the, the kind of conceptual disjunction between the stories of elves that we've been reading, the, you know, the, the, the high tragedies of the Silmarillion uh, and the silliness of this chapter in The Hobbit is made even starker when we recognize the fact that there are probably those among the elves who are, you know, teasing the dwarves about their beards uh, and singing tra la la lolly here down in the valley, ha-ha, um, who are like survivors of Gondolin and Nargothrond and Doriath, uh, you know, who barely escaped the massacre on the shores when the sons of Feanor came in and, and, and uh, you know, tried to regain the Silmaril from, you know, Elwing and her people on the shores of the sea. I, th- th- that's who we're talking about here, most likely. That's who we're talking about here. And it's hard to reconcile those two images, that is, the stories of the elves as we see them in the Silmarillion and what we see here in The Hobbit. Um, what do you think about that? What was your reaction to, to Chapter 3, to the elves of Rivendell? Nick, what were you thinking? Well, I was thinking in this in the Cimmerillion, it's more it's it's more of a history book, like an epic. So you don't really get like what elves do day to day. I mean, in the Cimmerillion, they could be running around. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, yeah, I I agree. I agree with you know we what we get here is and remember not from the elves' perspective, uh, we get. A little, you know, these people stumble into a day in the life of the elves, and we don't get much about what a day in the life of the elves is. And because the stories are themselves so, so grand and so, uh, and so tragic most of the time, perhaps we make assumptions that they sit around, I don't know, reciting very serious and lofty poetry. And, and, but, but yeah, mightn't the elves of Gondolin during the heyday of Gondolin been, you know, singing some version of the Tra-La-La-Lali song? Why not? It's perfectly possible. It's perfectly possible, especially when we adjust for the fact that this is the perspective of a hobbit on this. He doesn't fully understand what they're talking about or what they're doing. Um, if it seems ridiculous... The ridiculousness of it might be at least partially in the eye of the beholder here, who is not operating on their level and doesn't really understand what's at stake um, or what it is that they're singing about or what it is that they're talking about or what it can, can't even really get behind their point of view. 
And is, you know, there's much that he doesn't understand. Remember, one of the responses that Bilbo has to hearing them sing and he, to hearing their song is he wants to, to stay because and, and, he thinks it might be interesting to, to, to talk with people who seem to know all about him and his quest. Um, when, you know, he, he kind of, he thinks that's rather strange, right? I mean, he certainly didn't see this adventure coming. And so is pretty surprised to come to Rivendell and find that they know who he is. Bilbo the Hobbit on a Pony. And they're like, he's like, you've heard of me? Right? So um, that's clearly one glimpse that we have into his own ignorance about them and what they're doing and what they're focusing on. Derek? Most of uh, what you guys said was kind of what I was going to say, but uh, also... um, I think maybe from the else perspective, you know, immortal life goes on. You know, even after surviving, you yeah, know, like a few thousand years ago. So it's like you know, you gotta have fun. right, right. And the first age is so water under the bridge at this point. You know, I mean, well, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, there is. It's one of the things that there's there is a different perspective in 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 in, in the, the the elven experience, and not just in terms of its longevity, but also in terms of directly the ways in which they interact with things, the way in which they're connected. Remember way back to on fairy stories when the, the objection that Tolkien made to describing the elves as supernatural, right? And said, well, actually, you know, arguably, they're more natural than we are. They're more closely tied to the natural world than human beings are. So, you know, when they are singing silly songs about the flowing of the river and, you know, the smell of bread and things they have a fundamentally different perspective on the natural world and, and on, you know, sort of their own sense experience than, than human beings or than hobbits have. Um, so it's not surprising that it's kind of alien. Sometimes people ask me about that line. Remember Bilbo's first reaction when he comes to the edge of Rivendell? And he says, hmm, it smells like elves. Uh, sometimes people ask, what do elves smell like? I think I know. I think I found what elves smell like. It's in the Silmarillion. I'm not even kidding. It's in the Akalabath. The Numenorians can smell it. And when the wind is in the west, it seemed to many that it was filled with a fragrance, fleeting but sweet, heart-stirring, as of flowers that bloom forever in undying meads and have no names on mortal shores. That's what elves smell like. Um, but it's simpler, you know, if you're Bilbo, just to say, hmm, it smells like elves. Anyway, um, moving forward to the turning point in his career. Uh, the finding of the ring, of course, as was emphasized in the, in, on the Ring of Power in the Third Age, uh, the finding of the ring is the turning point, not just in Bilbo's personal you know, Burglarious career, but in his, in like the entire history of the Third Age. Uh, but what does this moment mean for Bilbo? Not just finding of the ring. What's his situation here? When he finds the ring, can I? It's the first time he's really had an adventure on his own. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I referred last time to how in the Fellowship of the Ring his encounter with the trolls is called his first successful adventure. Um, and not only do I think that that's 
perhaps an overgenerous way of describing his encounter with the trolls. Um, but there, he not only did he not do much, he wasn't even really the centerpiece of that. He might have started it in some sense because he was the one who uh, was first captured by the trolls and got everybody else into trouble. But, um, but it's not really his adventure. I mean, Gandalf is the one who comes and saves them, and, 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 and the dwarves are sort of the focus. Remember, by the end of the th- thing, the trolls have forgotten that he's even there. Like, he's fallen into the bushes, and they're completely ignoring him now uh, as they're focusing on how to cook all the dwarves. So, um, you know, he's involved, but it's not exactly his. This is the first time. This is his adventure, his first real adventure. And look at the completeness of that. I mean, the significance of where he is and what's going on, thinking especially in terms, as I was looking at last time, of the progression, sort of the progressive immersion into the wild and into the world of adventures, the sort of the Tookish world that the dwarves and Gandalf sweep him into. Um, and you have things which sort of start off a little bit adventurous and then he's more and more immersed until here finally, you know, he wakes up and finds himself completely alone, abandoned in the middle of the goblin tunnels, um, you know, with the goblins hunting everywhere for him and, and wanting to kill him, no resources, no food, no light source, um, not able to see anything or know where he's going. And he has to somehow, you know, Bilbo Baggins of Bag End, uh, who has no experience and no idea what's going on, has to now, by himself, find his way out of the Misty Mountains and escape from the Goblin Tunnels. It's a, it's, it's a you know, this is finally, now your, your transition period is over, Bilbo. This is it. Now he either has to succeed as an adventurer, he has to actually be able to thrive in this world, or or he's going to die. So it's a huge moment for him. Notice when the transition happens. He wakes up, he's crawling around, and he feels the ring, and he puts it in his pocket. He doesn't think anything of it at the time. It doesn't affect him right away. Of course, in retrospect, that's the huge moment. But not at the time. He still, he sits there with his back against the wall, complete pitch darkness, what does he do? What's his first impulse? What does he want to do? You remember? What he wants to do? What he trusts? Aaron? He wants to light his pipe. Yes. He wants to smoke. That is, another, you know, we can see him taking refuge in Baggins' things. He's just going to have a nice pipe, and if he could have tea, he would. He's thinking about eggs and bacon, right? So, I mean, if, if he could get some version of second lunch on the lawn, that's where he wants to go. Mentally, that's where he's going. Physically, that's how he's trying to cope. Now, he fails uh, to light his pipe. No matches, right? But, and he realizes immediately that would have been a terrible idea. Who knows what the smell of tobacco would have drawn in his direction. In other words, he recognizes, after the fact, that that Baggins' reaction is completely inappropriate. Is not only not going to help, it's going to be counteractive. What does help? This is, I think this is a really interesting transition for him. Marta? Well, he, he thinks to himself, he's like, should I go back? No. So I was, can't do that either. I guess I have to go forward. That's the only way to go. And he goes forward. Yeah. The simple resolution just to, to go on. Yeah, and that by itself, e- even the way that that's framed, right? Go back? Impossible. Sideways? Can't do it. Only thing to do. Let's go. The resolution that he has, the 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 resources, basically the personal resources that he drew, just to look at it simply and uh, draw on that conclusion. 
Um, that's that's a good thing. We see him him falling back on common sense. The hobbits will often talk about common sense, or as they will refer to it among themselves, hobbit sense. Right? This is a, this is clearly a move based upon his hobbit sense. What else? There's a moment when he starts to feel better. Actually, to feel better, not just to act, but to feel better. Yeah? Says he was comforted by finding his sword still in his britches. Yeah, he's forgotten about his sword, which he got from the, you know, it's a knife, but he uses it for a sword because he's small. Uh, the, the, the elvish knife that he doesn't even know that it's elvish. Yeah, right? Um, that he found in the troll's lair. And he pulls it out and he sees it glowing a little bit right? and realizes, ooh, this is a magic elven sword too. Probably made in Gondolin, just like the two swords that they found. You'll notice that Glamdring, Gandalf's new sword, was Turgon's personal sword from Gondolin. Um, we don't know who exactly had Orchrist, but it was presumably somebody, I mean, who, Thelion maybe, I don't know. Probably not Gorfindor, I would have reclaimed it. But, uh, but anyway, um, it's the sword out of Gondolin. And he realizes this. What's his thought process there? Look at this passage. Can someone show me? Marta, go ahead. Um, he says, uh, after he, he discovers that the sword is Elvish, he says, but somehow he is comforted. It was rather splendid to be wearing a blade made in Gondolin for the Goblin Wars, of which so many songs have sung. And also he had noticed that such weapons made a great impression on goblins that came upon him suddenly. Yeah. Uh, it's quite splendid, I think, that he's wearing a sword, one of those swords from the old tales. He is, of course, in a story now, but he never really thought about that. And he certainly never connected his own story with those great legendary stories that he's heard, stories like the fall of Gondolin. And so he now places himself there. And that's, that's quite splendid. Uh, and he thinks that, he remembers that goblins respond to these swords quite noticeably, right? Remember that moment back in Bag End in chapter one? Uh, one of the reasons that he bursts back in when he hears Glowen insulting him and saying that he looks more like a grocer than a burglar. Um, you know, Gandalf says that he's fierce and the dwarves are frankly skeptical about his fierceness, right? As he seems to like fall into fits at the mere mention of danger and like falls into a screaming fit on the floor. Um, and when he's hearing the dwarves insult him from the other room, he's saying, you know, he says that he, he, he feels like, this is where it says he feels like he would willingly go without bed and breakfast to be thought fierce. And now in this moment when he remembers his sword, he realizes, A, I am in. A great story now. Look at this. There's a connection between me and these great old stories. And actually, uh, I could be fierce. At least the goblins would think, would take me for fierce, right? If they stumbled across me and I have my magic elven sword. Now, we won't ever see him actually become fierce until he meets the spiders in Mirkwood. And that's going to be an important transitional moment too. Um, But this is that moment where again now for the first time he's actually becoming Tukish, in fact, not just in theory, that he's made that transition himself through his own choices and through his own recognition of his, large, of his place in the larger context, um, that he's actually becoming part of that world. 
Uh, this is why I think that although, again, you know, there's no downplaying the significance of the finding of the ring, for Bilbo's own personal career, um, the turning point comes in his own mind, in his own recognition and understanding, not when he puts his hand on the ring, um, but when he puts his hand on the hilt of his sword and recognizes this. And then, of course, proceeds to what is without question his first successful adventure. Um, that is, his encounter with Gollum in the riddle contest. Um, Gollum... Okay, I want, there are a couple things that I want to, to say first before we talk about the riddles. Um, first thing is... It is always true. I think, you know, I've said before when I've talked about uh, the Peter Jackson films, they're different stories. It's a to- this is, you know, it's, 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 it's not unrelated, but it's a totally different story, and you should never, you should always resist as hard as you can making equivalence between the two of them. That is, Gandalf, as he is depicted in the films, is a, is, is a different character from Gandalf as he is depicted in the books, because that, those are they're two different stories. They have the same name, there are many plot parallels, there are many plot differences, but they're not the same, and you can't just identify the two of them or apply how one acts or talks to how the other acts and talks. Different characters, different stories. Um, Gollum is the same way. When we read, especially here, um, also in The Lord of the Rings, but especially in The Hobbit, when we read about Gollum, uh, it is important to resist just thinking of the movie Gollum uh, because there are some big differences between the way that Gollum is depicted in the films and the way that Tolkien treats him. Um, and just want to start with a general appeal, make sure to, to be trying to resist that as much as possible. Um, but the differences aren't just between the book Gollum and the movie Gollum, and that's because the book Gollum changes himself quite a bit. Um, Tolkien published three different editions of The Hobbit. The book was first published in 1937. He, uh, the, when it's published, The Lord of the Rings is not a glimmer in his mind. He sits down, you know, The Lord of the Rings is originally the sequel to The Hobbit. Um, and when he wrote, you know, one of the major impacts of this is when he is writing The Hobbit, throughout The Hobbit, the ring is never a huge and portentous thing. Um, that came afterwards. When, he's, when he sits down to think, okay, sequel to The Hobbit, um, you know, I need some link, I need some connection between the story I told in The Hobbit and this later story, and he quickly decides on the ring. Okay, maybe the ring is more important. Maybe the ring has some bigger backstory that I can work with. And that's a very crude description of the germ of the Lord of the Rings story. Um, there's a lot of impact that that has on our thinking of The Hobbit when we're reading The Hobbit. Um, When Bilbo is wearing the ring, when he's carrying around the ring, when we're reading The Hobbit, we should not be thinking, I mean, at least to to understand sort of the spirit of this book as it was originally conceived, this is not like the fate of Middle-earth resting in his pocket. This is just Bilbo's magic invisibility ring, which is really cool because it can make him invisible and that makes him a particularly excellent burglar. This is how he thinks about it. This is how he talks about it. Um, it's not evil. Uh, it's not hyper-powerful. Um, in the first edition, uh, this chapter, uh, the Riddles in the Dark chapter, was quite different, especially in the way that Gollum was depicted. Because as I say, the ring wasn't evil with an inescapably corruptive influence upon any who wield it. It's just 
Gollum's ring, which he loses in Bilbo Finds. Um, let, me, let me read you some passages. He goes back and revises it after he's written a lot of the, the Lord of the Rings, and he goes back to the first edition of The Hobbit and is like, ooh, you know, okay, now in retrospect, that first version is not going to work. And so prior to the publication of The Lord of the Rings, he published an updated second edition. Uh, of The Hobbit, in which he made some very significant changes, uh, especially to the Riddles in the Dark chapter. Um, I, I see at least one of you has this uh, already. I highly recommend this book, The Annotated Hobbit uh, by Douglas Anderson. Um, it, it contains the full text of The Hobbit uh, with a lot of marginal annotations where he talks about changes from the earlier editions, some of the sources and analogs. It's very interesting stuff. But anyway, so here, here, here's the passage from, uh, from, from the first edition. When the riddle game is over, and uh, Gollum has lost because he couldn't guess what was in Bilbo's pockets. Um, you'll remember in the third edition, which is the one that we're reading, uh, Gollum runs back to his island, can't find the ring, realizes that he dropped it, and comes rushing back to murder Bilbo, and Bilbo sees him you know, coming and his eyes shining and, uh, in rage and hatred, and he, you know, Bilbo runs away, the ring goes onto his finger. Gollum runs by him in the dark. Here's how it happens in the first edition. Um, he's, rem- he's realizing that he lost the ring. I don't know how many times Gollum begged Bilbo's pardon. He kept on saying, we are sorry, we didn't mean to cheat. We meant to give it, we meant to give it our only, only present if it won the competition. He even offered to catch Bilbo some nice juicy fish to eat as a consolation. Bilbo shuddered at the thought of it. No, thank you, he said as politely as he could. He was thinking hard, and the idea came to him that Gollum must have dropped the ring sometime and that he must have found it, and that he had that very ring in his pocket, but he had the wits not to tell Gollum. Findings keeping, he said to himself, and being in a very tight place, I dare say he was right. Anyway, the ring belonged to him now. Never mind, he said. The ring would have been mine now if you had found it, so you would have lost it anyway, and I will let you off on one condition. Yes, what is it? What does it wish us to do, my precious? Help me to get out of these places, said Bilbo. Now Gollum had to agree to this if he was not to cheat. He still very much wanted just to try what the stranger tasted like, but now he had to give up all idea of it. Still, there was the little sword, and the stranger was wide awake and on the lookout. Uh, So then he leads him up the tunnel. Bilbo, at one point, experimentally tries out the ring. He, uh, he, he, as, he's walking, as he and Gollum are walking companionably next to each other uh, up, up the tunnel towards the exit, he slips the ring on and disappears. And Gollum is like, where is it? Where has it gone to? And Bilbo like, drops back and takes off the ring. And he's like, oh, uh, here I am. I just kind of drop back behind, walking very quietly. You know, don't mind me. Uh, and then Gollum is counting the tunnels as he does. And he says, here's the passage, he whispered. It must squeeze in and sneak down. We durstn't go with it, my precious. No, we durstn't, Gollum. So Bilbo slipped under the arch and said goodbye to the nasty, miserable creature, and very glad he was. He did not feel quite comfortable until he was sure it was gone. The end. They, they wave goodbye, and off they go. No, you know, Baggins, we hate him forever! You know, there's, there's none of that. None of that. Um, there are a couple things that I want to emphasize here. First of all, I mean, notice, notice the change. When he comes back, when he revisits this chapter, he makes Gollum both more evil and more miserable, more pitiable, um, more of a victim, but also, again, darker, uh, more sinister. The original Gollum is almost, uh, 
almost pitifully eager not to cheat at the game. Um, and the new Gollum completely disregards it. Um, and Bilbo suspects him of planning to cheat all along. Duncan? Um, I also noticed, I don't know if they changed it or totally changed it, but uh, in our text it says something about how the, wing, uh, the ring continually weighed on Yeah, yeah. That was Nothing like that. There's nothing like that. There's no sense that the ring is the cause of his condition or any kind of difficulty for him. It was just, it was his one special cool thing. And so he's upset to have lost it. And that's why Bilbo's consolation is, well, it's okay. You're going to have to give it to me anyway. So you would have lost it. So, you know, no net loss for you. And Gollum's like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. right. Um, and the terms of the original competition are, you, if I win, you bring me, uh, you know, the, the Gollum says, if I win, I eat you. Uh, but if you win, I'll give you a present. Because um, he's like, because I, I have this really awesome thing that I, could, that, I could, that I could give you. And so that's why he's all like, but I was supposed to give it the present, and now I can't. Well, there is like a certain suggestion of like the evilness of the ring when later when Bilbo comes across the goblins and it's like the last trick of the ring, like when it falls with his finger. It's yeah. something that he added later. And- yeah, yeah. The concept of the ring taking a new master, it's not this... Yeah, he makes the ring much more ominous. Almost all of the really ominous references to the ring are, uh, um, are later additions uh, that, that, that Tolkien adds. But now the other thing I want to emphasize is not just the fact of the changes, but to notice the way... Uh, and we'll see this more later on. It's, it's in The Fellowship of the Ring where this will really come out explicitly. Tolkien doesn't just go back and make the changes and then hope people don't notice, you know, like those people who had been reading The Hobbit already for 20 years uh, when the second edition of it comes out, or a little bit less than that, 17 years, and, uh, and you know, and then be like, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to pretend that nothing happened there. Here's the new edition of The Hobbit. I'm sure you don't remember that former chapter that I wrote. That's not how he handles it at all. How he handles it is that he incorporates the changes in the text into the fictional frame of the story itself. That is one of the things that I've already been emphasizing and that we will see emphasized even more through, especially through, through The Lord of the Rings, is that the composition of these texts is itself part of the narrative. We find out where these stories come from. This is not just a story being told by a disembodied third-person narrator. Um, these, are collection, these are collected stories. This book, The Hobbit, was originally Bilbo's own private journal. This is his book that Bilbo himself wrote. And we will find out later, there will be references. I want to draw your attention to this because sometimes people miss them because they don't know what's being referred to. Uh, When Tolkien first published The Fellowship of the Ring, he was speaking to an audience of people, most of whom read The Fellowship of the Ring, would have read The Hobbit also, and would probably notice the differences. And so he's addressing those people whom he's assuming are going to remember the changes from the first edition of The Hobbit to the second. Um, in the, in the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring, we will hear that Bilbo, for his own personal reasons, wrote an untrue version of the story the first time. And that the story as it was originally circulated, and there are still some versions that have this, uh, of, of, of Bilbo's manuscripts, he lied about the, the Gollum story. That's not how it really happened. There's a corrected version which tells the truth. But... The other version still gets around because the later editors of Bilbo's story are Frodo and Sam. And they have so much respect and love for Bilbo that 
they hate to change anything that he wrote or to correct any of his stories. So some of the original inaccurate versions of the story remained in circulation, you see. And so that's why you'll sometimes find one version of the story and sometimes find the other version of the story. But he actually integrates, he makes that change. And the reasons for the change, the reasons for the original concealment and the reasons for the, for the change in the story to the, to the second edition to be actually really centrally important. Um, it becomes a very important point. Why would Bilbo tell this strange, funny version of the story in the first place? That doesn't sound right. That doesn't feel right. And Bilbo was so honest normally. Why would he do that? And this is, of course, part of the whole story of the corruptive influence of the ring, as it's going to be told in The Fellowship of the Ring. Um, it is, uh, it's really a brilliant move that Tolkien makes more than once. As, uh, as a medievalist, especially as an Anglo-Saxonist, he was very accustomed to working with you know, the complicated manuscript histories of the texts that he studied uh, and you know, looking at the relationship between one manuscript and another and you know, one redaction of the story and, and another. And uh, you know, those elements he integrates uh, into this. And I, th- I think it's, it's, it's one of the things. You know, there are sometimes... Uh, where people will say, you know, what is it about Tolkien's story that sort of makes it seem more consistent? More, and I, this is actually one of them that I think, that the storytelling itself is part of the story. And it's one of the things that I think gives sort of that, that sort of final air of authenticity uh, to, to the whole thing. It's, it's pretty remarkable. Derek? Um, well, uh, there's two things. Um, also, um, well, so first off, I like, noticed that um, in a... The Hobbit, they also say, in my edition at least, they say how Gollum used the ring to like, catch fish and stuff. And, and goblins, especially, when he wanted to go out and get goblins, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's true, he uses it primarily to, uh, to hunt, to give him an advantage in killing people. And that's important. And also, like, um, also when, even when it said that he killed goblins, like at one part it said he even killed like a young goblin, so like, yeah. it shows goblins more pitiable than the Gollum. Yeah. A young goblin imp. It's, it's, there's actually a very interesting mirroring there. I and mean, we're told when the goblins take uh, Bilbo and the dwarves that they like, their favorite thing to do is to snatch somebody if it can be done quiet and secret uh, and without any risk to themselves. And that's exactly how they in turn are hunted by Gollum. Um, so he's kind of exactly sort of their own values, but kind of one-upped uh, in that way. I think that there's, a, there's a really interesting sort of parallel between them. When Bilbo and Gollum are telling riddles, um, what patterns do you notice in the riddles? I've already told you that one of my own, uh, one of my own hobbies, uh, and also, of course, one, one of my pet peeves in, in, uh, with, in responses to Tolkien is people who skip over the songs and don't think about the poetry at all. Uh, and one of my favorite hobbies is to think about the poetry uh, and to be really looking at it. Uh, the riddles are cute. Uh, Tolkien himself wrote most of them. Um, some of them are adapted from other riddles, but, uh, and some of them are modeled on other riddles. Like, for instance, the, uh, the, the legs riddle. No legs sat on one leg with two legs. Um, that, there was actually, that was like a little subgenre of riddles in Anglo-Saxon. They, 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 they loved riddles like that. Um, so he, he's, you know, using models and stuff, but he's making most of it up. Most people just kind of go back and forth thinking of, you know, they're, they're, they're just telling riddles. If you look at the riddles, you can see some pretty clear trends. You can see uh, a pretty stark depiction of 
Bilbo's perspective and Gollum's perspective in the riddles that they tell, and not just what is what do they tell riddles about? That is, what, it, what, what are the solutions to the riddles? Uh, but also in, in the language and the, the poetry that they use to describe those things. Tell me what, what are some trends that you can see in their riddles? Eric? Um, a lot of Bilbo's have to do with like, life and growth. Like he has the, the flower and the autumn with food. Yes, yes. Food and eating... Right, in part because he's sort of obsessed about that right then, because he's thinking about being eaten. So that's one of the reasons that the teeth riddle appear, occurs to him right away. But yeah, uh, food, but also as you say, growth and not food in a kind of a predatory sense, um, but growth, life, um, eggs, uh, the the very neat and orderly kind of eating that is associated with the uh, the thirty white horses on a red hill. Um, Riddle, um, the sun on the daisies. Yes, um, they're usually bright. Uh, they are usually connected with life and growth. How about the uh, the no legs riddle? What is the answer to to his to, to Bilbo's legs riddle? This one tends to be everybody's least favorite riddle in the riddle game. So I'm not surprised that. Uh, I'm not being overwhelmed with solutions, but Kelly? Uh, a man is sitting on a stool eating a fish, and his cat is getting the bone. Yes. Um, in other words, it's a very domestic scene, right? Here you have the, this man sitting by his fireside, as Bilbo is always fantasizing of doing himself nowadays, sharing a meal with his cat, right? Very homey. Very warm and friendly, and especially conspicuous when juxtaposed against the riddle that Gollum has just told, which is the fish riddle. I mean, the narrator emphasizes how this was a bad idea because he shouldn't have told this riddle about eating a fish right after the fish. That's why he thought of it, but it makes Gollum able to guess it pretty easily. But, of course, it's also pretty conspicuous coming after that. We have Gollum has just described what he is always thinking about in his primary meal, right? He fishes, you know, he, he takes these blind, goggle-eyed fish, and eats them raw. Um, And the way that he characterizes the fish, I mean, it's a perfectly fine fish riddle. But I mean, look at how they're being characterized. Alive without breath, as cold as death. Never thirsty, ever drinking. Dressed in mail, never clean. I mean, it's like this... I mean, it makes the fish sound almost undead or something, like like zombie fish. Uh, it is his sustenance. But, you know, him crouching, taking these blind, bulgy-eyed fish out of the ice-cold water and, you know, squatting there and eating them noisily uh, is, you know, and his own characterization of the fish's life. Um, just about as far as you can get from that little snapshot into domestic life that Bilbo gives in his following riddle. There are lots of things that we can see there. Probably my favorite pairing of all um, is Bilbo's Son on the Daisy riddle, um, which has as its root, that's, that whole riddle is basically a linguistic pun. Um, the Anglo-Saxon word for daisy translates literally to, to the day's eye, uh, which means the sun. Um, and so it's, it's 
the, the, the word daisy is etymologically connected to the sun um, for obvious reasons because it was it reflects the sun. Um, that is, it looks like the sun. It's this yellow disc, um, and the, the, the petals open up in the day and close up at night, so it's, it's you know, the mirror between them uh, is pretty clear. But anyway, right after that, right after the sun on the daisies one, we get Gollum's, which one do we get? Yeah, the darkness riddle, um, which seems almost like an aggressive response to this. Gollum is really annoyed by the sun on the daisies riddle which he has a really hard time with because he can barely remember the sun and he can barely remember flowers uh, and it makes him grumpy to remember these. So he tells this darkness riddle and the way he characterizes darkness, uh, engulfing all of the world. You know, it is above the sky and below the earth, surrounding it. He characterizes that bright little sunlit world of Bilbo's. Not as, it's not his, Gollum's world, which is this small, confined, subterranean place, and Bilbo's is great and wide and expansive. He characterizes it exactly opposite, right? The darkness enfolds everything. Your bright little world is the little bubble, and I am part of the great enfolding darkness that comes before and follows after. That is, it engulfs in time as well as space all that bright and living world uh, that that you were talking about. Um, There are some people who would connect, and I think this is a kind of a fun connection. The riddle contest between Bilbo and Gollum um, is almost like the, the, the war of song between... Uh, between Finrod and Sauron. Um, there are some differences, of course. The register is completely different. But, but there are definitely elements of that. There's a kind of competition going on, not just a riddle-guessing competition. Um, and, you know, this is how, this is exactly how those kinds of conflicts, direct conflicts, conflicts of power, often occur in Tolkien's world. With two people, with these very different views, these very different uh, concepts. Remember how Finrod and Sauron each had these these images almost that they were trying to compete with each other with? You know, Finrod's of freedom and escape and good things and Sauron fighting back with ultimately the kinslaying, right? Um, Here we have Bilbo and Gollum citing verse at each other, uh, laying out through their verse their own visions of the world, their own values. Um, I'd like to talk about every single riddle, but we don't have time to talk about every single riddle. Um, That's one of the riddles, too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, it's the last one. It's the the last and most horrible one, um, which is kind of interesting. You know, you sort of think uh, if 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 the kinslaying is you know like the the uh, you know the Noldor kryptonite that Sauron can always pull out and know that he's going to take Finrod down with it uh, is is time, you know. Right, yeah, like, or mortal kryptonite. I mean, it's like, hey, you know, should I play the time, mortality, and death card and take you down in the same way? That I mean, that is, if you have anything Numenorian that is bad Numenorian <laughs> about about your perspective, um, it, it's actually a little bit interesting. And of course, the way that Bilbo wins the competition 
uh, is a very comical come down from this concept that is the idea of, you know, Finrod and Sauron ending it with what's in my pocket is doesn't exactly work. <laughs> but um, the final moment of decision, the, the other, what, what the other moment in this chapter, which could be called the turning point in his career, which might be the most important moment in Bilbo's entire life, comes after this. What's his final moment of decision in this, in this chapter? It will be heavily emphasized in the Fellowship of the Ring, but Jordan? He chooses not to kill Gollum. Yeah. Yeah, his choice not to kill him. And there we see, I mean, in, through, the riddle, through the riddle contest, we can see the differences between the two of them. The radical differences in their outlooks, perspectives, worldviews, all those things. And here, at the end, Bilbo recognizes, you know, he begins sort of from that perspective. I should stab the vile creature, put its eyes out. Um, but then he pauses thinking that it's not a fair fight, and imagining himself in Gollum's position. And he sympathizes with Gollum and recognizes the connection. He is not just an enemy. He's not just a vile creature. He is pitiable. Um, You know, Bilbo is not yet quite thinking, doesn't know enough to think, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, but he recognizes a connection between the two of them and therefore has mercy on Gollum. Um, has pity on Gollum and jumps over him instead. And that uh, is a huge moment. Again, Gandalf will emphasize this later, but we can see this is where he chooses, well, <laughs> literally to take the high road, right? That is uh, really to embrace <clears throat> that worldview that he himself was describing, life instead of death, um, and not to be, not to be an instrument uh, of that dark world, not to really fit in in this dark world that he's been encountering uh, beneath the mountains. Okay, we have five minutes to talk about the goblins, the wargs, the eagles, and Bjorn. Ready? <laughs> what do you guys have to say about the goblins, the wargs, the eagles, and Bjorn? Any patterns that you notice? These are all residents of what is called the wild, and they're all wild to varying degrees and in varying senses. What do you notice? What do you notice about any of these people? I'm not necessarily asking for a single luminous conclusion drawn from observations of all four of them, but what struck you about any of them? Goblins, wargs, eagles, Bjorn. I, um, I've always found it kind of comical that Bjorn, as someone who consults with bears, as it's clear when he gets that big meeting of bears, Where's a beer shape? Doesn't eat any meat. Yeah. At all. Yep. And hates the idea of eating meat. Yep. Um, he is uh, he is completely vegetarian. Um, Big kind of bear doesn't eat meat. He is not shy about shedding blood. He's not goblin and warg blood. In fact, he's very enthusiastic about it. Uh, I mean, he implies the reason he approves of Thorin, the reason he accepts Thorin and, and lets him visit is because he's heard of him. Thorin is, fam- is from a famously anti-goblin family. I mean, everyone in this region has heard about the famous wars, which we get allusions to a couple of times in the book, the famous wars that Thorin's family have fought with the, with the, with the goblins of the Misty Mountains. Um, in fact, though we don't learn this 
in The Hobbit, the reason he's called Thorin Oakenshield uh, was from something that happened at the great final battle between the dwarves and the goblins in this war when his own shield uh, was, was broken and he hacks off uh, the branch of an, of an oak tree and wields a, an oaken club in his left hand uh, and his axe in his right hand um, as using it as a shield. So that's why from then on he's named Thorin Oakenshield. Um, so Bjorn has heard of him. Thorin, son of Thrain, son of Thror, I believe, right? So since you're enemies to goblins, you're okay. You know, if, you, if you have a history of killing lots and lots of goblins, you're okay with Bjorn, apparently. So he is, he is uh, I mean, I agree with Jordan that he's, he's an interesting kind of paradox in this way. He is an extremely violent guy. <laughs> he is savage. He is a bad enemy. Gandalf, remember Gandalf's ominous hints at the end when the dwarves are like, maybe we should just keep the ponies. And Gandalf's like, you can't even imagine what would happen to you if you tried to take those ponies into, in, into Mirkwood. I mean, they're not even, there won't even be anyone left to tell stories about what happens to you if you try to take those. And so Bjorn is uh, scary, but, but also the gentle vegetarian, right? I mean, that's, 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 that, that's Bjorn. Yeah. Uh, given that Bjorn is such a grumpus, I thought it was very interesting the effect, the effect that the that Gandalf's story has on him. Because, you know, he doesn't like company, but if somebody has a good story to tell, he doesn't really even care if it's true. But he'll, <laughs> he'll deal with you so he can hear the story. Yeah, yeah, he, he gets really drawn into the story. Of course, part of that is he's imagining himself, or he starts walking up, oh, if I were there, I'd have given him more than fireworks. And he's imagining, remember this situation, like the entire wolf kingdom is gathered in the glade beneath them, and Gandalf the wizard is like, well, we're pretty much screwed here. There's nothing we can do. And Bjorn is like, oh, man, give me a piece of that. I would, if I'd been there, boy, I'd have taken them all on single-handedly. And one gets the impression that he probably could have done if he'd, if he'd been there. Um, but, but yes, it, it is interesting to see his reaction to their story, uh, just sort of his relationship with stories. Uh, he, he, uh, yeah, he gets into it. How about the eagles? What did you notice about the eagles in our last two seconds? They're uh, noble. They're like one of the most noble races in the Hobbit. But... But they're still animals. They, they don't get along with the humans, right? They're not like professional good guys. Um, they, the, 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 they get shot at by the settlers, the human settlers, who seem to be generally kind of good guys because they steal their sheep. Um, well, I mean, you can kind of definitely get a sense that they're, they don't do this for just anybody. Yeah. Um, they have a special hat. Gandalf. Yeah. That's why they did it. Unlike yeah. Gandalf, who does, I think, do things out of the goodness of his heart sometimes. The eagles don't. Yeah. And they're not going to go out of their way. I mean, even after they find out about it, they're like, we're not going to take it that far. You know, we're, we're not going to put ourselves in jeopardy for dwarves, which is exactly what Gandalf is doing, right? Yeah. Good. Nick? But at the same time, I mean, the eagles make a habit of saving the day in like every single book. <laughs> it is kind of their job. Uh, it's a little bit in the job description. Mean, we've already seen it happen a bunch of times, right? I mean, we, you know, from Thorondor sweeping in and raking the eyes of Morgoth so that he can sweep off with Fingolfin's corpse, right, to uh, Thorondor coming in and rescuing Baron and Luthien at the gates of, 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 of Angman when they come back up from taking the Silmaril, uh, to coming in with Eärendil and the flying ship uh, in the last battle to come in and fight the winged dragon. Yeah, I mean, this, we've already seen this before this book. 
Uh, so, so absolutely. I mean, the, like El, the, 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 the eagles, most of the time you see the eagles. They are like an embodied eucatastrophe coming in. I mean, that's, it's their job. Um, and it's one of the things that makes it interesting to remember. They are not like these angelic creatures coming in. Um, they don't bother with the goblins most of the time. They're not like the constant enemies of the evil goblins. Um, and the reason we're given for that is that they don't eat such creatures. Most of the time, they ignore the goblins because they don't, they don't eat them for food. So why should they pay that much attention? I mean, they are not like these like pseudo-angelic vigilante for good, you know, our only reward is that justice has been done kind of. That's not their daily life. But you're certainly right. They do uh, end up doing that <laughs> a lot of the times. A big percentage of the time we see them. Aaron? I thought it was nice, um, the dwarves saying that they're, the, when they land them, the dwarves say, we're going to try to pay you back. And then it says that they do yeah. a golden crown and 15 golden collars so that the dwarves see that they're, no lo- that they're not just animals, that yeah. they do try to pay them back for their kindness. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, i got to let you go. Uh, bye. Okay, tune in next time for the third of our four classes on The Hobbit, in which we will discuss chapters 8 through 11. While we're on the subject of The Hobbit, however, I'd like to address a question I've gotten from several people. Although I've been posting my class sessions regularly, it's been a while since I last posted a segment from my Hobbit lecture series, and some of you are wondering if I've abandoned it. Not at all. I'm in the middle of another important project right now, but as soon as I get that cleared away, I will turn back to The Hobbit series with gusto. I actually hope to finish The Hobbit series entirely by this June or July. That's all for today, however. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.